I sincerely want to thank everybody who came out and helped with getting our service underway today, which is a large majority of the audience today. So. But thank you all, and thank you all for coming out, because it would have been very easy, I'm sure, to say, why bother? Let's just stay home. Especially when you look on the TV and see that literally a huge portion of the churches are closed in western New York. And my thought is, if there's one person here that needs to hear the truth, then I'm going to teach it and preach it. I will say, however, it can be a little discouraging to spend a lot of time preparing a sermon for a very small crowd. But one thing I always keep in mind, there's one person listening above all others. And that's what matters. And if he wants to hear it, I'm going to say it. And I hope you guys want to hear it too. I'll try not to put you to sleep. All right, our scripture today, and you're not going to see any scripture on the screen. And I apologize for that. I was going to actually print it out in a bulletin insert, but I lost a little bit of prep time this morning just trying to get out of the driveway. So. All right. This is called The Firm Foundation, at least my sermon title is. This is coming from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, if you want to follow along. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14 through 26, subtitled, A Worker Approved by God. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does us no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows whose are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Wait a minute, I missed a spot here. Sorry about that. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. How often do we hear something like that from somebody, that they're pursuing things like righteousness, patience, love, and peace? You know, normally when we hear somebody talking about what they're pursuing, it's, it's a new job, a better job, it's more money, something of monetary value, power. Those are the kinds of things the, the world teaches us to pursue. Better ourselves. How many of us can honestly say that those are the goals I've set for myself? Well, you won't see my hand going up. Paul also says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, there's a couple of words you don't often see in a sentence together. Opponents and gentleness. Well, he's got his opponent down and he's being very gentle with him. (laughs) Well, probably wouldn't make for an exciting match of any kind, whatever the case may be. You know, the world has a tendency to encourage us to destroy our opponents. Gentleness is usually not a word that goes with it. But that's what he says. Paul also says in verse 19, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now Paul may have meant this passage for a specific situation that was going on in the church at the time. But the truth is, it could be relevant for any number of situations in churches today. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Bible is out of style. It is every bit as relevant and important today as it was the day it was written. It is the living word. It never goes out of style, and that's the point I want to make, number one, in your bulletin. The Bible will never go out of style. You know, the world may be changing and advancing daily, as far as technology goes. But what about people? You see people changing and advancing daily? Becoming better people? Not in general, no. People still kill each other. People still lie. People still cheat. People still think they're better than others. People still can't control their tongues. People still do not live the way that God intended us to live. And that's what the Bible was all about teaching people how to live for the Lord. Verse 14 again, Paul says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. The NIV interprets that, warn them before God 
against quarreling quarreling about words. And again, we don't know exactly the words people are quarreling about, but we get the idea from his letter that it's about scripture. And to be truthful, that is a problem that we have had ever since there was scripture. Ever since there was scripture to quarrel about. Scripture to quarrel about. People have argued about what it means. Paul says quarreling about words does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Look at the Christian church today. There's umpteen denominations who supposedly believe that the Bible is the truth, the word of God, but yet they have different interpretations of different things, and they don't agree on what it means. So the church splits. A denomination is created. And what do people think? They can't even decide what they believe. They don't get along with each other. Why would we want to be a part of that? What does that offer anybody? Each and every believer needs to realize and accept that there are some things that God purposely did not make clear to us. Some things we just don't understand and weren't meant to. Not on this side of heaven. In Romans chapter 14, verse 1, Paul writes... Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. So what does that mean? There are disputable matters. There are some things that just aren't cut and dry, black or white. He goes on to say in Romans 14, verse 22, So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and and God. Me and him, nobody else. It doesn't become a platform for me to start a new church. If there's anything questionable, then it's up to us to decide. We're to discuss it with God and let him show us what he meant, what he wants us to do with it. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and There's some things that there's no doubt about. There is no question, even though some people out there would like to make it questionable. Lying is not good. Killing people for no reason, not good. There are tons and tons of things that I'm not even going to get into that other churches have accepted because... People want it. Oh, it's the way of the world. It isn't the way of God. God is not above about the world. God is about himself, his holiness, his glory. The world isn't. The world is about self-satisfaction. And it doesn't matter if 99.9% of the world thinks some of these things are okay. They are not. And they never will be. Other things we're supposed to make our own choices about. Some of us call that the 29-29 rule. 
Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord. I'm sorry. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. The secret things belong to God. So that tells us there are some things that are there that are only for God to know. Why does he bother putting them in there? Hey, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Why doesn't he just open up the sky and say, I am God, believe in me. He has a plan. Who am I to question? He gives us things that we don't know the answers to. I think it's all a part of the faith thing. God didn't want us to know everything, just like he didn't want Adam and Eve. Is that my my microphone that's making that noise? I don't know about you guys. It's irritating me. Let's try moving it down a little further and see if that helps. See if that's anybody. Can you still hear me good? You hear me way in the back there? <clears throat> All right. Adam and Eve, God did not want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that brings us to point number two. There are some things in the Bible that we were never meant to understand. I guess we didn't fill that in. There are some things, there we go. There are some things in the Bible that we were never meant to understand. All right. Paul says in verse 18 that Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, where do you think somebody would get that idea from? You know, the resurrection's a pretty big deal. We're talking dead people living again. That's not just something that you make up. Where would they get that idea? I'm glad you asked. We don't know this for sure. Scripture doesn't say it. But quite frankly, I can't help but to think it's a really good explanation. Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 to 52, and I'm reading from the NIV. This was when Jesus was being crucified. It says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, that's not often an Easter story. You don't usually hear that when we have Easter time, when we talk about the crucifixion. That's a very obscure 
piece of scripture. But if you heard that there was bunches of holy people who had died, all of a sudden they're in Jerusalem, and many people have seen them, what would you think? Hey, the resurrection. Well, I guess in a sense it was a resurrection. Some people were resurrected. But it wasn't the resurrection. Because if they knew the scriptures, they would know. Jesus is going to be resurrected. Then he's going back to heaven. And then he's coming back. And everybody's going to be resurrected. See, they had the right idea. It was a resurrection. But they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the truth well enough to know that it was not the resurrection. And unfortunately, they just wouldn't listen to the truth. So they were causing problems. They were causing people to turn away from the faith, to question the faith. Paul says they are upsetting the faith of some. How are they upsetting the faith of some? Well, Jesus told about the parable of the sower in Mark 4, verses 14 and 15. He says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. How does Satan come and take away the word that was sown in them? Casting doubts. Do you think that story would make people doubt? Hey, the resurrection already happened. But these guys say, no, it hasn't. But it has. We saw them. We saw the dead people up walking around. Ask these people. Ask them. They saw them. But they say no. Again, you guys can't agree on anything. Why would I want to be a part of you? Things like that. That's how Satan steals the word from people. That's how he steals the truth. He casts doubt. Sometimes he feeds us lies or he makes us question the truth. God loves me? How could God love me? I'm a filthy scumbag. He's holy and righteous. I'm not. I've done far too many things wrong. God could never love me. Satan will do anything he can to cause doubt, to make people question God's love, to make Christians look bad. And quite frankly, most Christians don't need Satan's help. We can do it all on our own. That's how Satan takes it away. Paul says in verse 14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Here's a good example. And I honestly, I will tell you the truth. This is somewhat based on a true story, even though this particular story is made up. Imagine a new Christian taught that God loves him, Jesus died for him, we need to love each other, one big happy family in Christ. 
That's great. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Well, one day this new believer standing around listening to Billy Believer. Now, Billy Believer's been a Christian for 15 years. He's a big guy in the church, well-respected, teaches a Bible class. So Billy Believers stand around talking to other prominent Christians in the church. And the next thing you know, he's bad-mouthing the pastor. And everybody just pretends like, that's okay, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. What's Billy believe? Or I'm sorry, what's the new guy going to believe? Oh, we love each other. We support each other. And we talk behind each other's back. Whenever we get a chance. And nobody corrects it. Nobody says that's wrong. Nobody says, Billy, what are you doing? You don't talk that way about the pastor or anybody for that matter. Talk about damaging a new Christian. Show them this great loving family. And then, scandal. What's that going to do? And again, that is the kind of thing that Satan uses to take away the word that was sown in them. That is how the faith of some get upset. Verse 16 Scripture says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Avoid irreverent babble. I love that term, irreverent babble. The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon, wrote in the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Three of the seven things that are detestable to God have to do with how we use our tongues. Proverbs 12, 18 says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, 4, The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs 18, 21, The tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. You imagine the tongue has a power of life and death. The book of James says, James chapter 1, verse 26, anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Worthless. If you can't control your tongue, your religion is worthless. James 3.5 says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. 
Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow, behold the power of the tongue. Verse 15 of the scripture, Paul said, Present yourself to God, one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What does he mean by that? Well, you don't fill in the blanks. You don't make stuff up. If scripture isn't clear, you don't try to make it clear by throwing something in there that you can't back up, that you can't prove by the scripture. You don't add to it to make it more exciting. God's rule for Adam and Eve was, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. When Satan tempted Eve, he said to her, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, he didn't. He did not say that. But Satan tried to make it worse than what it was. Tried to make God look bad. Tried to cast doubt. Apparently Eve didn't think that God's word was quite good enough. So she added her own little bit of drama to it and said, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You must not touch it. He didn't say that. He didn't say nothing about touching it. Quite frankly, you probably shouldn't. You probably should stay away from it if you're not allowed to have it. And I've actually heard people teach that the reason Eve said this was because she knew that touching it would lead to a temptation to eat it. I find that very hard to believe, knowing people, and knowing that just in a very short time, Eve was pretty easily persuaded to eat the apple. I don't think she was protecting herself by saying, you must not touch it. I believe she was trying to, again, make it more dramatic than what it was. Oh, you can't eat that fruit. Don't even look at it. You'll burst into flames if you do. <laughs> Don't touch it. Several years ago, and I haven't heard it in several years, and I hope it just went by the wayside. I'm going to call it a fad because I don't really know what else to call it. Some... Bible scholars, Bible scholars decided that when Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, that the number could have been as much as 20,000. They came to this conclusion because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, again, this is from the NIV, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men. 
besides women and children. So these scholars, in all their brilliance, determined that if there were 5,000 men, the combined total of women and children that were with these men could have easily totaled 20,000. So all of a sudden, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 became the story of Jesus feeding possibly 20,000. I know, personally, one pastor who seriously stood up in front of the congregation on Sunday morning and referred to Jesus feeding the 20,000 as if it were fact. Didn't say, didn't even bother to say, this is what some people think. You know, it's one thing to say, possibly, you know, there may have been more than 5,000. There may have been six, seven, eight, maybe even as many as 20,000. We don't know. But to stand up there and say that Jesus fed the 20,000? That's a flat-out lie. I don't get it. Are you not impressed by Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish? Let's see you do it. Not exciting enough? I don't know. I don't get it. Or is it just, you know, you want to know a secret that nobody else knows? Oh, I, found, I know something. There wasn't 5,000 that he fed. And I want to read something for you. Mark chapter 8, 14 through 21. Subtitled, The Yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Well, no, it wasn't. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? If Jesus Christ himself claims to have fed 5,000 and 4,000 respectively, who in the world has the right to proclaim it was 20,000. I just don't get it. And these were Bible scholars. These were people who supposedly had knowledge of the Bible. And they missed this. We must handle, correctly handle the word of truth. Point number three. We must correctly handle the word of truth. What if I told you that most of what Pastor Matt preached last week wasn't true? What would you think about that? Given the details on what he preached, could you prove that it was easily? And please don't get me wrong. I don't believe for a minute that Pastor Matt would stand up here and preach anything that he did not believe 100% to be fully true. Nor would I. 
But we need to know. We can't just assume that somebody that has authority is telling us the truth. There's a lot of people out there, you give them a microphone, they will tell you a whole lot of things. But not necessarily any of it would be true. All the time, all over the world, there are false teachers in the churches preaching things that aren't true. So how do we know? If it is the word of truth, how do we know? And the perfect example, Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Paul was preaching. They loved it. They wanted to hear it. But they checked it to make sure it was true. How many people ever leave this church and go home and check the scriptures to make sure that what Pat, or what Pat, well, yeah, Pat too, what Pat, Matt, and me teach and preach? Anybody do that? I'm not saying there aren't scriptures that you already know, and it's like, yes, I know that, that's true. But that's good. We need to know the scriptures, we need to know that the word that's being passed off as God's word is. Because I don't want you hearing Phil's word. I don't want you hearing Pat's word. I don't want you hearing Matt's word. I want you to hear God's word, his truth, and nobody else's. We need to read and study the word ourselves. Imagine a college student who faithfully goes to class every day, listens intently to the, intently to the instructor, but he never opens the book outside of class. What happens on test day? Good possibility he's going to fail. Because he probably doesn't have enough information to pass the test. I'm sure to a lot of people, the idea of some of these cults that we've known over the years... For example, the Branch Davidians, okay, you remember that? That was the wacko in Waco, David Koresh, said he was Jesus Christ. Basically burnt himself and a whole bunch of other people to death. Claimed to be Jesus Christ and had a whole bunch of followers. Wow, scary, huh? Heaven's Gate, these people committed suicide because they were going to hop on the back of a comet and go to heaven. That's in uh, the book of, uh, I don't know, I don't remember where that one's at. Kill yourself and hop on the comet. That's how you get to heaven. And then Jimmy Jones, or Jim Jones, in Guyana, I think it was, Africa. I forget how many people drank the Kool-Aid. We're going to have drinks afterwards today. How do these people fall into this stuff? They're looking for something. They're looking for the truth. And these people were proclaiming the truth, their own truth. And these people didn't have enough sense to check 
and see if it was the truth. They completely trusted in someone else to tell them what the truth is. Jesus was telling his disciples about the end times in Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 and 11. He says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. In the same chapter, verse, verses 23 and 24, he says, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Deceive even the elect, if it were possible. And again, some Bible scholars will tell you that the elect won't be deceived because they won't be here. People are already out there claiming to be Jesus Christ. They're already here. It's been going on for a long time. David Koresh said he was. There's a guy in Florida right now. I haven't heard much from him lately. Orlando, I believe it is, has a tremendous amount of followers on the internet. He claims he's Jesus Christ. He has 666 tattooed on his arm. Hmm, Jesus Christ wearing the mark of the beast. That must be in, uh, what's that book after Revelation? People, Jesus Christ is not going to have the mark of the beast. But yet, these people don't know. They don't know the truth. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Never mind, we already did that. I got a little excited. My pages get a little messed up. Jesus says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. They say that the elect cannot be deceived because they'll have already been taken to heaven. And I say, if that's true, then why did Jesus bother to warn us? If we're not going to be here, we don't need that warning. I believe the elect will not be deceived because they will know Jesus will not be named David Koresh. Hi, I'm David Koresh, also known as Jesus. No, don't think so. The elect will know that Jesus won't be holed up in a compound in Waco, Texas. The elect will know that Jesus won't have the mark of the beast tattooed on his arm. That is not scriptural. The elect will know the scriptures. The elect will know that the whole world will know when Jesus comes back. Everybody will know he's here. 
No one will have to tell the elect that Jesus is here. If someone says he's here, guess what? He's not. Unless you already know it, he is not here. If you have to be told, he is not here. If I tell you that the number seven that I'm holding in my hand is red, are you going to believe it? How many believe this is a red seven? Nobody? Come on. I got a great explanation as to why this is a red seven. You don't believe it? Why? Why do you not believe it? Because you're like me. When your kids were little, you watched Sesame Street and they said, this is the number four. And it's black, not red. You know the truth. I could stand up here and preach to you why this is a number seven till I'm blue in the face. And I hope you won't believe it. And if you would, then see me afterwards. We know the truth. We know that it's a green three. Only if you know the truth, you can't be deceived. Deuteronomy. One of my favorite passages, chapter 11, verses 18 18 through 21, God said to the Israelites, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Think about what he's saying here. When should you talk about the words of God? When you're home, when you're not home. When you get up, when you go to bed. He wants us to be totally engulfed in his word, in his truth. Put it in front of us. And you don't have to literally staple it to your fence or to your door. But the point he's trying to make is never let it out of your sight. Never take your eyes off of it. Keep it in front of you. Teach it to your children. Live by it. Be totally engulfed. That is how we correctly handle the word of truth. Matthew 7, 24 through 29. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I don't want to live in a house like that. I want my house built on the rock. Jesus Christ is the word of truth. He is the rock. The foundation that we need to build our church on. The foundation that we need to build our lives on. The foundation that we need to build our marriages on. The foundation that we need to build our family on. We can't pass the test. We can't know the word. We can't know the truth. And we can't keep from being deceived if we don't open the book. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, you are the rock. You are the firm foundation. You are the way, the truth, and the light. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for giving us your truth. For loving us. And sending your son to die for us. Lord, I pray that you help each and every one of us. To be like the Bereans. And examine the scriptures every day, God. Every single day. So that we know your truth. So that we understand your truth. So that we can share your truth with others. So we can live by your truth. So that we won't be deceived by the world. That the word you sow in our hearts won't be stolen by Satan. We love you, Lord. Use us. Empower us to be the people that you want us to be. To control our tongues. To be examples of Jesus Christ to the world. By the things we say, by the things we do, and by the way we live. We ask all of this for your honor. And your glory, in Jesus' name.